So I guess jumping into this series, you'll see, you know, John Owen, Mortification of Sin. And it might seem really, really random, but actually the next series that Hanley wants to do is a character study. So he wants to look at different Christian figures throughout history, such as Hudson Taylor, Jonathan Edwards, and we want to glean biblical truth from their life. So originally I was given a sermon, a topical sermon to talk about anything, and I was writing a paper about John Owen for class, and I figured, oh, like I'm really learning a lot from this person. Why don't I just turn it into a sermon? And so it just happened to align with Hanley's character study. So he figured, hey, why don't you just kick off the series? So I thought, okay, cool. So that's why I want to talk about John Owen today and his work, The Mortification of Sin. So before I even jump into this sermon, it will some, sometimes seem like a lecture, sometimes a sermon, maybe a mixture of both. So I'm trying my best to make it uh, palatable to us um, before I jump into that, I want to explain maybe really briefly who John Owen is. And number two, how did John Owen define mortification? So let me do that before I jump in. So, yeah, that's a picture of John Owen that I pulled from Google Images. So he was born in England in the year 1616, and that's the same year Shakespeare died. Nothing really important about that year, but it's an interesting fact. Um, and he had a lot of different roles in life. He was an army chaplain. He was a political insider. He was the dean of a university, Oxford University. Uh, he was a theologian, pastor, father, husband. So in his personal life, he had 11 children, and only one of them survived past adolescence. And even that child who survived, a girl, after she got married and her marriage collapsed and she moved back home, she ended up passing away as well. So John Owen, he went through a whole lot in his life experienced a great loss. And as the dean of Oxford University, he preached a lot of sermons. And his sermons were very practical, very concrete, because to university students, uh, they're more on the younger end. And so they're just beginning to understand the complexity of sin. So I actually really appreciate it while reading his work that it was very, very practical. And I hope to bring some of that into uh, this sermon today. And so uh, throughout his time there, his sermons have been, uh, I guess, reworked into uh, three different works. But today we're only going to look at one work, which is the mortification of sin. That's the main work I want to look at. So that's a little bit about John Owen, just really short. Uh, right now, I want to talk about how did John Owen define mortification? What did it mean to him? Because I'm sure all of us are wondering, well, I think I know it means killing sin, but are there nuances to it? So I just want to give very, uh, very quick bullet points of how John Owen defines sin. So first I'll start off by saying what mortification is not. So for John Owen, mortification, it was not the utter destruction of sin. It was not the utter destruction of sin. So in this life, Yes, the Holy Spirit can bring a believer to the point where they can have a near constant triumph over sin. But to, think, but to think about an utter destruction of sin so that it has no effect in your heart, that's not to be expected in this life. Uh, number two, mortification, it's not a diversion of sin. What I mean by that is just because someone is struggling with a sin, but let's say they move on to a different sin and struggle with that. Well, that first sin, that doesn't mean this person has killed that sin. It just means he's moved on to a different sin. 
For example, you can think about an elderly person. He may not struggle with the same sins as a 13-year-old, but he just might struggle with a different sort of sin. So a person can exchange pride for worldliness. A person can exchange lust for legalism. A person can exchange arrogance for hating others. So there's a whole different uh, kind of way that a person can sin, but still serve the same master. Uh, The last one is occasional conquest of sin. John Owen will say there are certain times when we sin and then we make a certain uh, vow to never sin again. But that can actually be, uh, that may not actually be true mortification. So he talks about something called the eruption of sin. So just uh, in our lives, we've all done something wrong. So just imagine a time when you did something uh, more shameful than normal. Pretty sure we'll naturally feel very convicted and we'll cry out to God and say, God, I, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that again. God, I, I promise I'll never do that again, Lord. Just be with me and I promise never to do that again. Now, that's good and that is genuine. I, I don't doubt that. It's just that conviction is temporary and it's not true mortification because eruptions of sin doesn't really lead necessarily to lasting mortification. So that's how John Owen defined what mortification is not. Now, mortification, three things of how John Owen defined it. The first one is this. It is this, a habitual weakening of sin. So it's a very slow day-by-day active pursuit to kill sin to the point where it will not have the same power that it used to. Its power grows weaker. For John Owen, that's what it meant to kill, that's what it meant to kill sin. That's a habitual weakening. Second one is uh, there's a constant fighting and contending against sin. So the person who engages in true mortification They know that there is an enemy. They know that there is spiritual warfare. And they know that this means a daily declaration of war against sin. This person is ready to inflict new wounds and new blows on sin each and every day. This is the person who wakes up and knows, God, today I need your help because if not, I will fall into sin. I'm ready to do battle with sin today. The moment I open my eyes, this morning. This is the person who's engaging in true mortification. He knows there's a battle to be fought. Lastly, uh, Owen defines it as frequent success. The mark of true mortification is frequent success. Not 100% success, but frequent success. That when your heart encounters any hint of sin, any kindling of your imagination, any sinful fantasies in your mind that when this happens, your heart instantly apprehends this sin, brings it before the law of God, the love of Christ, condemns it, executes it, and does away with it. This is what it means to have frequent success in grabbing sin the moment you see it. This is a mark of true mortification. So this is how John Owen uses the term mortification. So that's just a little uh, background as we jump into. Now, as we jump into uh, the main meat of this, I do want to share how this has come to life in my life growing up. Here and there in the sermon, I will share my struggle in high school and parts of college with pornography 
because I feel that this theme of mortification, it's become such a real theme in my life that God, I wrecked my life on my own with my choices. And in order for God to heal my life, he had to wreck my life. And so I want to share a little bit here and there throughout the sermon of how this came to life in my struggles with God. It's not going to be confessional. I don't want it all be, to be all about that, but just when it's necessary and when it's helpful. So I just want to give you guys um, heads up on that. So here's the outline that I want to give today. Just two points, very simple. Uh, the necessity of mortification. And number two, the means of mortification. Uh, for me, I really have to make things simple in order to anchor with it. So hopefully this helps us um, as we jump into today. So the necessity of mortification. So John Owen, in his first chapter, he has a life verse that grounds the mortification of sin. He has a life verse that grounds everything of his work. Why he believes and preaches about mortification of sin. It comes from a verse in Romans, Romans 8. Um, so I have it up here, Romans 18, 813b. You can turn there if you want, but if not, it's totally up here. And he breaks it down in his first chapter, uh, how he sees this verse as a foundation to break sin, the foundation for mortification. So I just want to go through each part individually. All right. So, I'm going to just highlight certain verses up, uh, certain words up here. So the first thing I want us to look at is the word if. That's really important because it's not necessarily a cause and effect. If I drink water, I'll be less thirsty. I don't think John Owen wants to go about it at that because um, salvation, it's not cause and effect. Salvation is not if I do good works, I will earn uh, eternal life. That's not what Owen is trying to get at. And that's not what Paul is trying to get at. It's more of a means and an end. That God has a God-appointed means for you to find life. If you mortify the deeds of the body, God's appointed means, the ends is you shall live. And I'll get into that later on. So it's not it's less cause and effect and it's more means to an end. The next one, the word you. It's directed at believers. Now, if you look at the beginning of Romans 8, I don't have it up there, but it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So Paul, he's talking to believers. He's talking to people who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and they have no more condemnation because of the blood of Jesus. So this imperative, this command, it's directed at believers. If someone who's not a believer, their task is conversion. Their task is not killing sin. If you try to talk to a non-believer and tell them to kill their sin, well, that's not really going to work because they see no desire to kill sin. You're just giving them the law, but you're not giving them grace. So for the non-believer, their task is conversion, to focus on that. But for the believer, which is for this verse, the task is mortification. Owen says, there is no death of sin without death of Christ. So that means that people who are believers, they're united with Christ Jesus. And so they have the death of sin and they have the life of Christ. And that gives them everything they need in their arsenal to kill sin. So the next part is through the Spirit. So through the Spirit is the cause and the means. 
Mortification, if you try to kill sin apart from the Spirit, well, that's just false religion. That's just trying to do something on your own power. That's just trying to feel better about yourself, but not necessarily wanting to fall more in love with God. That's no better. So to really kill sin, it has to be done in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the main mover. If you are a believer in this room, then you have everything you need to kill sin. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. And that gives you every ounce of energy, ability to overcome sin. That's all we need. The Holy Spirit, He is the main mover. I don't want us to miss that. Because Owen, he goes over this again and again and again. And even Romans 8, Paul talks about, Romans 8 is really life in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. So don't miss the Holy Spirit as the main mover. Next one is, uh, do mortify the deeds of the body. So this is the task. Um, the word body, it doesn't mean physical body, it means the flesh. So anything opposed to the spirits. Um, the deeds, that just means the outward manifestation of a corrupt heart. Um, and to mortify, we kind of talked about that before, putting to death the deeds of the body. Yes, Jesus Christ, through his cross, has rendered us dead to the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but there's still these battles that go on in our hearts that wage war and try to fight for control of our desires. And so lastly, if we do all this, if we, through the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, this is the promise. You're going to live. In a primary sense, it means eternal life, not in the sense of you're earning it, but that somebody who does fight to kill sin, that's an indication that they are a true believer and that indicates that, they, that their reward in heaven is secure that they will be with the Father forever. That's a primary sense. But in a secondary sense, it also means that the quality of your spiritual life depends on you killing your sin. Owen has a really good quote. He says, The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. And so the joy and quality of your spiritual life, it depends on whether or not you're actively putting sin to death. He gives, you know, Owen, if we really, if we, when I read this, he gave a lot of word pictures and I want to share one right now. Um, he talks about a cloud. He compares a cloud to unmortified sin. He says this, it is a cloud, a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. It takes away all sense of the privilege of our adoption, and if the soul begins to gather up thoughts of consolation, sin quickly scatters them. What does this mean? It means basically that if you're a believer and you are caught in habitual sin, it doesn't cancel your salvation. It doesn't cancel the fact that you're a child of God. But it does hinder something between you and God. You do lose sense that you're loved by God because it's affecting the quality of your relationship. And so I love the image of a cloud that, yes, the sun is still there. Yes, God is still there. But if we're indulging ourselves in sin, 
then we should not be surprised that the quality of our relationship and the way we commune with God is affected. And in my high school years, in my college years, I knew this very well in my struggle with pornography. That when I did not want to turn to God, it would just be a day after day struggle, not knowing if I was a believer or if I was not. Waking up every day, not knowing, is God even real? God, if you're real, why aren't you helping me? God, if you're not helping me, do you not love me? And these struggles and these questions just polluted my mind. And it just felt like I was walking through this dark cloud, just not knowing where God was, not knowing if God would ever rescue me. And so I'm not saying that everyone here may have the same struggle, but I think we can all relate to shame. I think we can all relate to certain things in our life that distance us from God and ask and cause us to ask God, why don't you rescue me? God, why don't you bring me out of this pit? I'm only sharing my personal side because I hope the shame will uh, interact or have some commonality. So this is what unmortified sin will do to our relationship with God. But you know what? There, there is good news because on the flip side, if we are putting to death our sin, on the flip side, it will bring joy. It will bring a spiritual vigor. It will bring this delight that we are honoring our Father in heaven. And I think it was Tim Challies or whatever Christian blogger does it. Um, he says that the pleasure of obedience is far greater than the pleasure of sin. And I have found that to be true. That later on in my college and seminary years where God was bringing people in my life to wreck my life so that he could rebuild it. I found that to be true. That when I was, I guess, deceived by the lies of sin. But when I saw the truth of God's promises. Afterwards, it was true that there's something so spiritually deep and delightful about enjoying God and knowing you're making him happy and that you're honoring him. There's something so powerful about that. So that cloud image, yes, on the flip side, it does affect your quality of relationship with God. But on the flip side, if you are uh, fighting to kill sin, it will affect your quality for the better. So... This is why the necessity of mortification is necessary. Um, So that was necessity of mortification. Now I want to jump into the means of mortification. So we may be thinking, okay, I know it's important. I know this is something I want to do, but how do I actually do it? I think if I could, I would just love to plaster all the points I could, but I can't. Um, But it's a really... It's a treasure if you ever get to read the book. There's modern translations if you want to read it. Um, but in the means, in the second point, I have two subpoints. Uh, so I want to talk about a preparatory work and a main work. So there's going to be a preparatory work that talks about uh, things to know, uh, things that you can prepare your heart for, things that you can actually take action. And then there's the main work where the real change happens. It's actually interesting. Owen spends, I think, three-fourths of his first book on preparatory work. And then, like, last two or three pages on the main work. I thought that was just interesting. Um, So, why don't we jump in into the preparatory work. Uh, 
So Owen gives three. The first one is this. Consider the dangerous symptoms in your heart. That there are things in your heart, things that you can self-examine about your life, that if it's true, our souls might be in danger. And so the first one is this. A hardened heart. Owen says to examine your heart and see if it has been hardened. And this comes from Hebrews 3.12, where it says, verse 13, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So how do you know if your heart is hardened? Well, you know your heart is hardened if you commit a sin, but there's no bitterness in your heart. That you commit a sin, you sit in during a sermon, but your heart is sermon-proof. It doesn't pierce your heart. That when you read the Bible, your heart is Bible-proof. The Bible cannot pierce your heart. This is a person who, whom sin has become a familiar companion. That when this person sins, they're not startled by it. It's a familiar thing. The conscience doesn't see it as strange. And he makes light of sin. And I think for me, in my show, it was so easy to say, Oh, this isn't so bad. I'm not hurting anybody. There's so many people out there in the world doing so much worse things. This isn't that bad. And so that was my way of manipulating and making less of sin. And so Owen says if a person finds himself to be in heart, to have a hardened heart, then this will take an extraordinary course of mortification. It'll take more than just memorizing a Bible verse. It'll take an extreme overhaul of the soul. And so examine your heart. Try to see, how are there sins in my life, big or small, that I've just been hardened to? That I just care less and less about over time. Second one is this. Applying grace to unmortified sin. Now get this. It's not a bad thing to think about grace. God actually tells us to meditate on His kindness. Psalm 77, 11, 12. I'll meditate on all your work. This is a good thing. To meditate on on the goodness and mercy of God. However, our hearts are deceit. There is such thing as meditating on God's love so we can silence our conscience. There is such thing as what Owen calls turning the grace of God into a lack of discipline. That phrase really hit me. Turning the grace of God into the lack of discipline. Meaning, I take the grace of God and I use that excuse so I don't work hard to kill sin. That I don't give God my all. So when our flesh, when we're ready to utilize God's gracious promises, but then we pervert it to our own purposes, well then, we're applying grace to an unmortified sin. We're manipulating the blood of Christ, which was given to cleanse us. The kindness of Christ, which leads us to repentance. The grace of God, which helps us deny ungodliness. We're using that for our own rebellion. And this is wrong. This is a dangerous symptom. I think it's very easy to say, in my past, in my college and high school years, to think, when I struggle with sin, when I struggle with pornography, the next morning, the next day, say a quick prayer, God, please forgive me. Can you? I know I messed up again. I don't know when I'm going to be better, I guess. I don't know when you're going to heal me. Just, I don't know, God. I don't know what else to pray. And I say like a quick prayer to cover my sins, and I just move on. I think that's an example, at least for me personally, of using grace to cover my sin manipulating it 
And I think that is a dangerous symptom. And so it could look different for all of us. This is a, and our hearts are deceitful, so we should not be surprised when we take something good and distort it. So that's the first one, considering dangerous symptoms. Um, Second one is this, of the preparatory work, getting a clear sense of the danger and evil of sin. So, he goes about this in the first point, grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says this, Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Now, I'll be honest. It's so easy for me to just go throughout the day and forget First, like the Holy Spirit is a person. I mean, theologically, I believe that. Practically, it's harder for that to translate. But it's also hard for me to know that my sin makes and grieves the Holy Spirit. That can cause the Holy Spirit to be sad, to be crushed. It's so much easier for me to be sensitive to my friends and family members. But why not to the Holy Spirit? The one who has chosen our heart to be his home. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and our actions defile it. And so we have to keep in mind our sin is first and foremost against God, against his Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is always thinking um, and there is always monitoring and seeing where do we give our hearts to? What kind of entertainment do we give our hearts to? And the Holy Spirit is overjoyed when we keep our temple, our bodies undefiled. The second one is this. The danger of sin is that it can take away a man's usefulness in this generation. Yes, you may be a believer. Yes, your salvation may be secure. But the danger of sin is that you can be rendered useless in God's hands. Owen gives a powerful picture. He gives a picture of a dying plant. An alive plant, but a dying plant. He says, you know, imagine there's a garden and there's a precious herb growing in it. I don't even know if that's an herb. looks like a plant. But just imagine that it's an herb. Now, it's still alive, but weeds have overgrown. The ground is untilled. It's withered and unuseful. Maybe you go into the garden. Maybe you find it. Maybe you don't. And even if you do find it, and you do find, hey, this plant is real. Even then, that plant is useless. So it is with our souls. Our salvation may be real. Our security in Christ may be real. But our usefulness to other people for the kingdom may be rendered useless. You may be a genuine Christian, but unmortified sin, guys, it's going to choke our spiritual health. And it's going to make us useless in God's, in God's eyes, in God's hands. We may be alive, but we are ready to die. This is the state of unmortified sin. And so this is precisely why mortification is necessary. To daily root up the weeds of lust and to make room for grace to thrive and to flourish. So when I came across this, this is such a powerful picture that. I want to be thriving in God's kingdom. I don't want just to be alive. I want God to use me to build his kingdom now and to have an eternal impact. I think the danger and the fear is that we could still be a part of God's kingdom, but we actually work against it. And that is so scary. 
Uh, the next one, uh, the last preparatory work is this. Rise mightily against the first actings of sin. I think it's so tempting to think, oh, maybe I'll permit this much sin, but then let's, let's stop right here. I think I can control myself watching this much. I think I can control myself, allow myself to do this. In my sin, this, this was so familiar. I think I can handle myself. I think that I can take a handle of sin and control it when I necessarily have to um, get out of there. That's not the way sin works. If we can help it, sin will claim as much ground of our hearts that it can. It is impossible to fix boundaries on sin. It's impossible to say, okay, sin, just stop right there and we'll be good. It doesn't work like that. If we give sin sin an inch, it will take a mile. Sin is never content within a boundary. It always wants more. So Owen talks about treating even the smallest hint of sin, but treat it as if it's already accomplished its fullest desire. For example, treat that lustful glance as adultery. Treat that angry thought as murder. Because if sin had its chance, if it had its opportunity, that's what it would shoot for. So we have to treat even the smallest hint of sin, if we're serious about killing it, as if it's already at the end. And that gives us the necessary um, urgency to kill that sin. So you get the idea that sin, it's always going to aim at the extreme if given the chance. And so even for me, practically, if I think about the sin of lust, when I think about either scenes in movies or I think about billboards on freeways, I have to treat that as if Satan's going to use that to make me do the most despicable things. I have to see it like that if I want to be serious about killing sin. And I think that's what Owen's getting at. When we see sin, we, ha- we can't see it as something small, innocent, and harmless. We have to see it as something aiming to destroy your soul and destroy the people around you and your life. That is what gives us the proper lens to kill sin. Now, on a lighter note, the perfect example bumped into my mind, if you've seen this TV show growing up. Um, does anyone know where it's from? Yes. <laughs> it's from VeggieTales. Um, I actually didn't really like this episode, but this was very, very relevant. Um, this thing is called a rumor weed. Um, and so what happens in this episode is the two main characters tell a story in secrecy to this rumor weed. And they say, don't tell anybody. But this rumor weed goes to the different um, parts of town and tells different people and basically gossips about sin. And so the more the gossip spreads, the bigger this rumor weed becomes. And at the end of the episode, the rumor weed has spread to the entire city and arises from the sewers. And in this next picture, this will make more sense. Ah. So you see that small plant? That's Larry Boy, by the way, if you didn't know who he was. I'm so sheltered. Um, But that's the rumor weed at the bottom. But behind it, you see what it can really become. You see the rumor weed becoming something entirely different that can actually wreak havoc on a town. But at first, it started off as something small. It is the same way as sin. We see it as something small, maybe harmless. Oh, I can handle it. I can get out of there. I can fix this. 
but we don't realize it's such a slippery slope. It can easily become something monstrous that rampages our life. When we make provision for the flesh, it'll become bigger and bigger. And so that's what Owen, that's why Owen says, when you see even the slightest hint of sin, rise mightily. Use every ounce in your being to not give any provision for the flesh. So all that is the preparatory work. And then in the last slide, he gives the main work. And he only gives two, uh, two things. And they're this. Setting your faith on Christ and knowing this, the mortification is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Uh, I didn't mean to do that. Um, <laughs> HSS. Um, but get this. This shows that we are doing, we're not doing the main work. Whoops. Here we go. We're not, oh, Spiri. <laughs> we're not doing the main work. There we go. Thank you, Chris. We're not doing the main work. It's not, you don't see memorize Romans 6. You don't see Roman, memorize Psalm 51. You don't see pray for this many times a week or a day. You see that what's presented and what's put on display is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, that they are the main movers. They are the ones who will slowly, over time, bring your heart into a place where it's more and more like Christ. The blood of Christ alone is the remedy for sick souls. And so when we've set our faith on Christ, it means to consider the fullness of grace of kindness and forgiveness that is reserved for you in Christ. When we think about our sin in relation to God, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is not the anger of God that leads us to repentance. It is the love of God, the love of the Father that coerces you as a loving Father will to love Him more and more. If God intended to give you repentance... Well, then that naturally means God intends to give you the ability to mortify sin. The question is, are we surrendering our hearts, opening our hearts to receive Him? I think about it like this. I read an example, a different book, where imagine a pitcher is throwing a ball to you. Now, you're not doing the main work. The pitcher is doing the main work. But the way you receive it, the catcher, you can either be prepared to catch the ball or you can be distracted. You can have your back turned around. You can be looking in the stands. But it's the same thing. This is how both the Holy Spirit and man works. The Holy Spirit does the main work. But are we preparing our hearts to receive the Holy Spirit? To surrender our minds, our hearts, and our wills to the Holy Spirit? We have a part to play. And so setting our faith on Christ. That's the first main work. The second one is realizing that the Holy Spirit that the work of the Holy Spirit is mortification of sin. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says this, I'll give them an undivided heart and I'll put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone. This means that the Holy Spirit, he's the main mover. He's the main character. He's changing your heart. He's the main agent. And then, but the question becomes, well, then what's my role in this? If it's really the Holy Spirit, can I do anything? 
The Holy Spirit is the main mover, but he will not act in such a way where it's not your act of obedience. He's not going to overtake your will. He's not going to force you to do something else. The Holy Spirit works in us and he works with us, but he does not work against us and he does not work without us. The Holy Spirit will work in, con- in alignment with your will. But then how do our hearts, how are our hearts even aligned in the first place? Well, that's a work of the Holy Spirit in which we must come to him in prayer and asking him for a right desire, a new heart to kill sin. So the Holy Spirit, he's not going to magically force you to do something. But he does work with you and alongside you. So in his book, he really spends two pages on this, which is interesting, but he spends a lot more on the preparatory work. But I think that's important to understand the ways that our hearts um, can be fashioned like this. So this is John Owen and his work of mortification. And this book, it's, it's truly evident that this man has lived and breathed scripture. And he's just spent hours and hours meditating on sin, the human heart, and how to cling to Christ in the midst of it. And I feel that this was such a treasure to read. I'd read it for a class and it was not the most interesting at first, but when I knew it was a requirement, I just put myself to it. It was just breathing truths into my life. Like when I think about my struggle with pornography, I realized when I began to see change, I didn't really necessarily do anything different. I didn't try anything entirely different. I was still trying to fight, but just for some reason over time, gradually, progressively, the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ chose to change my heart. For whatever reason. And I'm not sure if I could point to one factor or another. And I think that just shows that the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, they are the source of change. It's not necessarily anything we do, though what we do matters. So I pray and I hope that God will use Owen's life and God's word to help us mortify sin. And I know one sermon is not going to fix our life, but it can at least begin our life. Start it on a trajectory to kill sin. And so that's my hope for all of us. So let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have poured into our hearts as believers. This Holy Spirit raised your son from the dead and will also give life to our mortal bodies. In our process of sin, Lord, we may experience shame, guilt, and so much other things. But may your kindness and forgiveness meet us where we're at. And bring us hope, Lord, that you will bring us before your Father, cleansed, justified, forgiven. 